Welcome to the Business of You podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Gogos. This podcast is dedicated to helping you uncover how to turn your big idea into big business and grow your personal brand into the business of your dreams. Each week, I'll talk to founders of all kinds of businesses, exploring how they launched and grew their companies. Behind every successful business is an epic journey, one that can serve as a roadmap to help you grow yours. The Business of You is all about frank conversations and unique business wisdom for the entrepreneur. It's a chance to tune into the story behind the brand and retrace the path of those who walked this road before you so you can pave your own road to success. Welcome to the Business of You. Tim Calise is today's guest on the Business of You. Tim is not only an entrepreneur, but he is an investor, a consultant, and a podcast host. His focus today is helping service-based businesses find the hidden profits in their business and really exploit them to grow a company's revenue to heights an owner hasn't imagined. But Tim has a very interesting personal story. In fact, by the age of 25, Tim had actually raised over $325 million for his first professional job, which he founded as an investment company owner. He went on to build a seven-figure tech fitness business with his wife, and more recently, he was on a very small executive team at Gym Launch, which is Alex and Leila Hermosi's company. At Gym Launch, Tim oversaw the development of a tool or a software, I should say, a SaaS company called Allen. Allen, in and of itself, is a very unusual story that had that came to be um, at a time in the world that was perfect timing. So, if you want to hear a story about perfect timing uh, and how luck plays into being in the right place at the right time to create a very unique an unusual software that really changed several industries, then I highly suggest that you listen to today's episode of The Business of You, where you'll not only hear about Alan um, and working with Alex and Leila Hermosi, but you'll also hear about Tim's product to profit framework. Enjoy today's episode of The Business of You. Tim, welcome to the show. It's so great to have you here today. Oh, thank you for having me, Rachel. I greatly appreciate it. Excited to dive into your work. You've had a really interesting career path. Um, in fact, from a very young age, you raised quite a bit of money. So uh, can you share with us your journey from, say, your um, early teen years to that age of 25, which I think it was when you raised a couple hundred million dollars already, right? What What was yes, that like? Yes. What were the things you were doing? What What led you to to do that? Yeah. So even going back to kind of the middle, my middle school years, I had this insatiable spark of kind of solving problems that I saw around me. Uh, and so even when I was in middle school, my, my, I like to play lacrosse growing up. I played for our town and our school didn't have a team. And I remember, I think I was in sixth grade, uh, over a February break, I got the catalog and priced out all the equipment and, you know, put a budget together. And I pitched the, the head of our school on let's form a team. And I figured the whole thing out. I mean, wow. probably going back, the pitch was probably horrible, 
but the idea of here's my current state, here's the ideal future state that I see, like, let's start being a bridge builder. And that carried forward into my my teen years uh, and even specifically into college. Uh, I went to school in Washington, D.C., and my sophomore year in college, for for anyone who's familiar with the D.C. area, a lot of people commute from you know Northern Virginia and and Southern Maryland into D.C. proper, and then everybody leaves again after say eight nine o'clock, you know, kind of dinner. Everybody has dinner and then they go home. But as a college student, that's especially you know Friday. I'll say Thursday, Friday, Saturday night, depending on who you are. That's when things really get going. And so we saw a need for college students kind of having a late night option for snacks and drinks and things like that. So a couple of friends of mine and I, my roommates, we started a late night snack delivery business Mm. in the DC area, our sophomore year in college. And it was, the core principle was, you know, we were our core customer. We saw a problem and we went out and solved it. And within 24 hours, we had that business launched. So I kind of speak to those things as to, I was always looking for opportunities. Um, and so when I got out of college, I fell into uh, kind of the entrepreneurial space in finance and, and investment in the investment world at that time were hedge funds. It was kind of the alternative to you know the S&P 500 and, and what have you. And so I probably naively jumped in and said, I'm going to go raise money. We're going to build this business. Uh, and I figured out our unique selling proposition and we went out and crisscrossed the country uh, and over about a... F- three and a half year period, uh, we're able to align ourselves with some major investors uh, in uh, and be able to raise over $300 million for wow. uh, for the strategy that we had laid out. Did you study finance? I did. I was uh, finance and economics in, in college. Uh, and I knew I wanted to be in the investment business in the mm-hmm. kind of finance world. But I knew I also wasn't cut out for like being a small cog in a big wheel. Uh, mm-hmm. I was much more kind of that entrepreneurial part of me probably wanted to go the the less uh, worn path. Mm-hmm. And that's why uh, I think it was the right fit for me at the time. And I was fortunate enough to be able to align myself with uh, with a partner. Uh, he ran the portfolio, I ran the business, uh, and the two of us were able to to accomplish some, some great things in a very short period of time. Hmm. Um, well, I love to, the part of your story where you started that delivery business. It's like you were the early version of Uber Eats or DoorDash in a very... Uh, localized yeah. market there. So uh, brilliant move. But but back to the hedge fund. So what was it, would you say, about you and your partner that created that trust and that depth of the relationship for other investors to, you know, to invest this much money in you? I mean, you were just out of college. It wasn't like you had a big track record or um, uh, some hyper-connected network you know, at least that I'm aware of. So, so what was it? Do you think? No, you're 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 exactly right. I started fresh, uh, mm-hmm. and I think the seeds of it started again earlier in my life when yeah. uh, I was one of those kids who I was always more comfortable uh, around adults than I was really around my peers. And so, kind of fast forward to that time, the context, like the environment at the time, was. Uh, all of the best minds or many of the best minds in the kind of the finance world were going into this space. And when you have big, primarily ego-driven, you know, personalities, when they were starting these companies, their own investment firms, they had this huge head about them. And I remember coming in fresh, and this is where kind of being an outsider can play to your advantage. I looked at the, the 
the feeling of their their advertising, their marketing, the speeches they were giving. And it had this air of, you should be lucky to invest with me. Mm -hmm. I'm like, you're doing, I'm doing you a favor by you giving me your money. And I thought it was so strange. Yes. And so what I say, our unique selling proposition in the beginning, it was simply, and when you're small, Mm -hmm. uh, as with every business, just about, you know, growth is not linear, Mm -hmm. right? You start small and then it compounds and compounds. And so when you have very little money to, to manage, you're kind of taking what you can get, you know, maybe $25,000, $50,000, $100,000 at a time. And we primarily got that money from uh, high net worth individuals. Mm-hmm. And it was primarily their retirement money. Wow. And, he, and and I'll give you the entire kind of pitch, which was the one thing you will never, ever worry about is whether your money is safe. I know what it means for you to trust, put your trust in us. And so here's my cell phone number. You can call me anytime. I'm going to email you weekly. So I literally built the proposition in the beginning of identifying what it is that mattered to the to, to these investors, this pool. And I just said, I'm going to be hyper-communicative. Mm-hmm. That's our value add. Mm-hmm. And it worked. And we went, you have to have a good track record. But that's what was able. we were able to kind of get in the door because of that. It then led us into what we ended up really finding out our value proposition was, which was we were really good at hitting singles. We were like 1% a month, like clockwork. You're never going to make a ton of money, but you're never going to lose money. And that is what turned out to end. That's what raised the next kind of $200 million because uh, it unlocks some major tours for us. What do you mean by um, hitting singles? Yeah. Yeah. Great. So when if you think about investments, you know, you think mm-hmm. about uh, Facebook going from, you know, if I only got into Facebook early on yeah. and it went up by, you know, a hundred times, there's a lot of risk. Think of like venture capital and, you know, things like that. We were not in the risk business. We were in the low risk business and go back to the story I just shared, which is when, when we're talking about retirement money, most people are like, I don't actually need it to grow by 10 X. Yeah. I just need it to not go down. And so we just said, if you give us $100,000, I'm going to try to give you about $1,000 a month, like okay. 1% a month, like, oh, like but, you'll, but, mm-hmm. but you're never going to hear from me going, so your 100000 is now 20000 Right. There were firms that were doing things like that, uh-huh. and especially around 2008, that was a very common outcome because you okay. kind of take, the, the business was built, take a lot of risk as a manager. We just didn't do that. And so we just said, you know what? It's going to be like, uh, you know, we'll give you like 1% a month, like, and and you just won't see big drawdowns is what they call it, you know, big yeah. losses. And that really appealed to people. They were like, I get it. Like, if you can do what you say you can do, and all of the significant percentage, uh, majority of our investors ended up giving us more money over time. Mm-hmm. So they'd give us 100000 to start, and then they'd give us an extra, t- you know, 250 or 500 or whatever it is. And that was how we were able to really build the business in the early days, because we built that trust. Mm-hmm. What year was that? Was it 2008? This was two, 2003. And then the end of the story. So so imagine for a second, I am in my early 20s, single, mm-hmm. spending seven days a week, you know, 12 hour days building this business. And in the middle of 2007, for anyone who was out there kind of as an investor, the world was starting to kind of go crazy. This mm-hmm. was when uh, Alt-A mortgages were starting to default. Things started to look frothy. It was it was a very weird time as an investor. And our strategy stopped working. Mm-hmm. And so we had a decision to make. So we said, do we either kind of change our stripes 
to try to call it adapt to this market? Or do we say the world has lost its mind? Mm-hmm. We're the only sane ones, mm-hmm. and we're going to kind of stop playing this game until things get you know become more normal. And that's what we did. We gave our investors a choice. We said we're going to go to cash. We're not going to participate. We won't charge you fees, but we want to have the right to go and invest again when we think things are are more uh, the deck is stacked in our favor. And they all took their money. They all wanted their money back. And so December thirty one of two thousand seven, wow. we gave back all three hundred and twenty five million dollars voluntarily. Wow, that is crazy that they all wanted it back at the right, at, yep. you know, kind of right before everything. Yep. Um, and yep. it doesn't sound like there was much loss experienced for for those people over that duration of what was it, four or five years, right? Yeah. No, we were we were the top performing fund of our of our type, uh-huh. uh, evaluated by basically how much return we were able to give for the little risk we were taking. So we okay. were the number one fund on, on Wall Street in uh, uh, in that regard. So our investors never saw any losses. They just they took their money and went elsewhere. And then, unfortunately, I think a lot of them saw losses after that. Right, right. Uh, At that time, when all your investors said, yes, we'd like our money back, what was going on inside of you? What were you thinking? Were you feeling like, gosh, I have to make a career pivot or this is really the end of an era? Or were you feeling really positive about what you had accomplished in that time period? Uh, I was very proud of what we had accomplished. Mm -hmm. I went through the grief cycle. Mm -hmm in a lot of ways, because again, I'm now 26. Uh-huh. I had just built this business. I had a lot of pride in, uh, and you know, the economics are very good. So I was like, this yeah. is like, I built the business and now it's like the time to enjoy it and kind of get paid back for all the hard work. And it didn't pay off, uh, in that regard. So we made some money, but it wasn't like it was a, a major exit or something like that. Um, and I think at the time, you know, I didn't have kids at that time and things like that. So my expenses were next to nothing. Uh, so I wasn't fearful of the next step, but I definitely was, uh, I wished it obviously had turned out differently. Yeah. 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 But it was the right thing to do. It, we, in the long term, it worked out very well because yeah. I maintained the relationships with those investors and I didn't feel it at the time, but that was the biggest asset I walked away from were those relationships who said, who called me back a year later and said, I should have listened to you. You were right. Uh, and instead we went and did something else and you know, we, it didn't end up as, uh, as well as we wanted. So mm-hmm. I still maintain a lot of those relationships even to this day. So mm-hmm. I walked away with an asset that was a long-term asset rather than, yeah. you know, kind of the short-term, uh, you know, financial payoff that I was looking for or hoping right. for. Right. Right. That's great though. Yeah. That sounds like a great outcome. So what did you do next and how long did it take you to figure it out? Yeah. So, uh, I am from the Northeast. Mm-hmm. This firm that we founded was based in Alabama of all places where we had no friend, no family or any, anything. Uh, my wife and I got married right kind of at the end of that story. Uh, and then, uh, we said, let's relocate back to the Northeast where we had family. And I knew I didn't want to be in the hedge fund business. Uh, and I didn't really want to be working for a large bank. Uh, and so we relocated to uh, where my wife is from, which is Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Uh, and I looked around and said, you know, what do I want to do? I've got this kind of fresh start, blank sheet of paper. And my wife and I were Division One athletes in college. That's how we met. And so we said, you know, working out and fitness was always something that was of interest to us. Uh, and my wife Googled personal training in the town that we were living in or moving to. 
And there was a banner ad for this technology company that was creating uh, a new fitness product. And so my wife checked it out and she's like, you really should go look at this because mm-hmm. this is right up your alley. It's fitness and it's technology. And it's kind of, cause that was kind of my, my wheelhouse. Uh, and I walked in and I thought it was revolutionary. It basically took the person out of personal training and replaced it with technology. That was the concept. So you could get 24 hour day, seven day a week, personal training on demand, unique for you. So I called the founder of the company and said, are you taking investors? Cause that was my kind of investor hat. And he said, thanks, but no thanks. We're, we're kind of fully funded at, at the moment, but we're opening up these brick and mortar locations. Do you want to be a developer? Hmm. And it evolved very quickly into a franchise. And so my wife and I started a basically a fitness franchise in, we started in 2009 mm-hmm. and built it from one location uh, up to eight locations over the next five years uh, and to a multi seven figure a year uh, revenue business. And so that was the next chapter was to kind of start putting my own money where my mouth was uh, and becoming an investor and an operator uh, in, uh, in, in service businesses. And mm. that was kind of the next chapter that, uh, that, that landed in my lap a little bit. Interesting. So you owned, you and your wife owned all eight locations? We did. Yeah, mm. we owned and operated eight locations. Yeah. And were, were those throughout Cape Cod? Uh, it was all of Massachusetts. So, so we had uh, five on the Cape and then three on what they call the South Shore. So uh, the area between Cape Cod and Boston. Okay. Uh, what were yeah. some of the, well, what duration of time was that from one to eight locations? So you said 2009, you opened your first one. Yep. It took us about five years, five, six years to get to the to eight. So that took us to about 2015, 2016. Okay. And what do you credit that growth to? Was it, you know, the, the brand of the gym and it just started picking up and, the, you know, the combination of the software, the 24-7 aspect? Uh, what was it? Was it, I'm sure part of it was how well you and your wife ran these locations too, but what, what else contributed to that growth? I'll be transparent. In the beginning, it was my ego. It was (laughs) when you're, when you're in a, as a developer in a franchise, Uh every franchise has the leaderboards and who's doing well and things like that. And our metric was the number of members. We called them the number of lives changed. Okay. And I remember looking at this board and going, I want to be on the top of this board. Mm-hmm. I so we went from one, and I also understood economics and you know the Cape uh, Cape Cod specifically being effectively its own DMA, its own like marketing area. I'm like, I'm spending marketing dollars. People travel, you know, 10, 15, 20 miles from home to work. So having more locations actually helps us. Uh, and so we started with three very quickly. So we opened one in 2009, one in two, early 2010, and one in late 2010. Mm-hmm. And that, that actually was the right the right strategy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we very quickly kind of like, and I started moving up that board. And I'm like, all right, you know, <laughs> things are going well. Uh, we, we're decent, building a decent team. Uh, and then I, that's where my ego was like, all right, how many more of these can I build? Uh, and I took a step back somewhere in the middle there where I probably went over my skis a little bit. The lesson of like expanding too fast and not having systems and process uh, definitely hit us uh, in in the middle section there. Uh, and then we solved some of those problems and were able to acquire another territory and, and expand a little bit, things like that. So, um, but yeah, I think I, a combination of being part of being in the right place at the right time which was kind of technology through this time is when, you know, Peloton or uh, um, uh, Fitbit 
mm-hmm. started to become big. You know, some of these other kind of technology products started to enter the marketplace. Uh, and so the digital, the, the the quantified self was becoming a thing. And so we were a little early, but that definitely gave us a tailwind kind of in the middle middle part of that, uh, that time frame. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what made you exit when you did? Uh, meeting Alex and Layla Hermosi. Uh, oh, okay. I met them in basically in 2018. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Alex sat me down where I, I, that's the first time I met them. Uh, I had won a competition to go and see them. Uh, and so I was literally sitting at their dining table in Austin, Texas, and it was me and nine other gym owners. And Alex was doing this impromptu, uh, kind of call it consulting session. Cause that was kind of the, the, the part of the day. And everybody's questions were, you know, how do I get more members? You know, how do I run sessions more effectively? How do I find trainers? All these kind of very tactical uh, questions. And then it came to me and and we spoke for a little while. And he said, you know what, uh, you're in the wrong opportunity vehicle. And his words, not mine. He said, you're far too smart to be a gym owner. You mm-hmm. should be doing something else. And so he said, you should sell your gyms. And I was like, all right, that's actually probably not a bad idea. And for me, I, I think it was the right thing. I needed to hear it because mm-hmm. I had kind of gotten comfortable. It kind of ran ran its course. Uh, there was a lot more upside for me uh, personally you know, and, and professionally as far as development. And so I left there and started to basically shop the, shop the business. Uh, and then it opened up the next chapter of my life, which was to be able to, to align myself with Alex and Layla and be, uh, be part of the executive team over at Gym Launch. So it was kind of one of these weird coincidences, but it definitely yeah. had a major impact on on kind of what the next chapter of my uh, my personal and professional life was going to look like. Well, it's so interesting, Tim, because as you share your different experiences professionally, it feels like there's this natural end and this natural beginning, and it's full of serendipity and sort of divine timing, you know? Um, yes. And it feels very almost easy. Maybe it didn't feel easy for you, but as you're telling the story, each of your transitions have been just full of ease, it seems like. Uh, I, I will say they they were they are certainly very clear delineations between uh-huh. each chapter. And as different as they are, you know, there's finance and then it's fitness and then it's technology and then it's service and consulting. Um, you know, I, I'm a big believer in this idea of kind of like of talent stacking or tactic mm-hmm. stacking, you know, skill stacking. And as different as they feel, mm-hmm. if you actually look at kind of the evolution, even going back to when I was in middle school, it was like, I learned how to evaluate a problem and some mm-hmm. basic skills on pricing and product market fit and pitching. Then you go to that college experience and I learned a lot of things about speed to market. I learned about advertising and marketing and acquisition. I learned about, you know, kind of how to be part of a partnership. So each of these things, like a snowball rolling downhill, I kind of collected another another thing. Uh, And so when I got to fitness and technology, it was like, all right, I understand how to market. I understand product market fit. Uh, I understand how to kind of create your kind of spot in the market. But my experience in finance was really important because we brought on investors at one point. We did some financing. I understood how to exit a business. I understood how to evaluate a business. And so how an investor looks at a business is critical to creating a sellable enterprise. And so many of us get into business from the delivery perspective. You know, Take fitness as an example. So many personal trainers become gym owners. 
they're really good at the service. Most of them, and this is why Jim Launch was so valuable, had no idea about how to actually run a business. It's like mm-hmm. the e-myth concept. Mm-hmm. So having the perspective of this is how to start the business, here's how to finance it, here's how to evaluate it from a financial performance, how to exit, how to do all these capital raising things, um, how to run margins. You know, Margins is a basic concept on paper, but it is so critically important. And most people don't understand yeah. are my gross margins appropriate for my business or not, or you know, for the type of business. I would say, what are your gross margins to a gym owner? And their eyes would glaze over. Mm-hmm. Like, let me translate it in a different way. Does it feel like you're making a lot of money and there's not a lot of money left over at the end of the month? Oh yeah, that's my problem. Right. It's because you actually don't have the financial principles underneath the business to actually be successful. And so I think I was really fortunate. I don't want to say lucky, but fortunate to be able to have learned some of these lessons in other capacities and then brought them to, to whatever it is I was doing. Yeah, absolutely. It was like your, your MBA uh, really took place yeah. after, after undergrad yeah. there in a much more realistic exactly. and applicable way. So yeah. t- tell tell me a little bit about the time at Gym Launch and what your work there was like, what your focus was, and and what some of your results were. Yeah. So when I came on, uh, I first was in charge of Prestige Labs, which was mm-hmm. so Gym Launch. As people uh, you know, kind of really hear the name, uh, Gym Launch actually had three companies underneath it. It had a consulting business under Gym Launch. It had Prestige Labs, which was a supplement business. And then a third, uh, which we called Allen, which uh, I ended up heading up shortly thereafter. So I ran Perceived Labs for about six months uh, and then uh, had a great GM, uh, Maggie Owen, who currently runs the business. Uh, She came in behind me and uh, I oversaw that business in the beginning. And then just to give context, Gym Launch was in the business of helping gym owners make more money. Okay. In In the beginning, it was there was a better business model that needed to be implemented in order to do that. So the idea of like doing more of the same wasn't getting to get you to where you wanted to go. We needed to break the beliefs of what a fitness business could be. We introduced the six-week high-ticket front-end transformation challenge. That was a, a, a great, you know, kind of addition to the model. And you run all the all, all that through. And then you say, okay, now you have the new business model. We added supplements because it helped monetize the relationships that we had with our with our uh, with our members mm-hmm. so then you run all that all the way all that through and then you say well what's the next problem to be solved now for context this is kind of 2018 19 most businesses fitness businesses at that time were running facebook ads and for anyone who was out in the marketplace at that time facebook ads in like 2015 16 were like five cents 10 cents 25 cents a piece they were really inexpensive. When you get to 2018, 2019, they were up to you know $5, $10. Now, when a lead costs you a quarter, but then they go up to $5, you start to care very deeply about how efficient you are at turning those leads into something. That was the gaping hole that we saw in 2018. So we started by teaching fitness owners, fitness business owners, how to nurture leads more efficiently. Mm -hmm. And by the nature of the business, it was like pushing on a string. It just didn't work. (laughs) We could teach them all the things, but it just wasn't happening. You know, uh, Jane or John, the front desk person was the person who was charged in making phone calls and doing follow-ups and it fell apart very quickly. 
And we said, we're going to solve the problem for them. And we created Allen. It's basically a le- automated lead nurturing software hmm. that would take a lead from Facebook or your website. And it would do all the nurturing for you through machine learning and some other things. And on the other end, you would get a booked appointment with a person walking through your door ready for a sales appointment. Wow. So we did all the work for, for the owners. Mm-hmm. And that was transformative. To give you some numbers, uh, 18% of leads would actually show up in a fitness facility before Alan came on the scene. We were able to get one in three, and in some cases, one in two leads to actually show up in a facility, feet in the, on the ground, in a fitness facility with no human interaction. Hmm. That's amazing. And it fundamentally changed the, the, the trajectory of some of these businesses, and it allowed us to build a uh, $20 million ARR business in about five months. Hmm. And that was so, Alan, it was the product that I built and took to market under Gym Launch. So were other gym owners and uh, using, so that it was a subscription model to sell Alan to the other gym owners. Is that right? The so Alan, 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 even better, was a pay-per-show model. Oh, so, okay. So you didn't pay anything until we no. got somebody to show up yeah. in your gym. And so that no is risk. what allowed us to grow. Yeah, no exactly. risk for the owner. It's brilliant. Yeah. Totally brilliant. Yeah. It was fantastic. So, and we and we aligned ourselves with marketing agencies, and and we used affiliates and and partnerships to grow that business very very quickly. Yeah, is Alan still around? It is. It was part of the exit, uh, December twenty twenty two. It was sold, okay. uh, but yes, yep, still exists. Okay, and is that when you left uh, Gym Launch? Uh, yes. Yeah. Right. Actually, just a little bit before that, but yes. Okay. Yeah. Twenty twenty two. Okay. Was Alan ever used in other industries? Great question. So imagine, so sitting in my seat, we took this to market in officially January of 2020. Mm -hmm. And as I just mentioned, we trained the model, trained the software Mm -hmm. to get a lead to to walk through the doors of a fitness Mm -hmm. facility. Enter COVID. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And in a minute, we went from getting people to walk through a facility the demand was, how do we get them onto a Zoom consultation? Because every fitness business effectively went online. And it took us about a week to do it. It was a very stressful week. But we basically retrained the model to say, instead of, you know, go to 123 Main Street, it was, here's a Zoom link and all of those sure. kinds of things. And about five seconds after we validated that it would work, we looked at each other and said, holy, you know what? Yeah. We just figured out how to get an online lead to a sales consultation virtually. Right. The world is our oyster. Mm -hmm. And within about six months, we were in 30 different industries. Hmm. And so, yes, we had versions of Allen that were trained on uh, everything from, uh, you know, Invisalign to Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, marketing services to we had a mattress store, we had uh, bloat tanks and everything in between. And the criteria were effectively a membership or subscription, and it was high ticket because that was where we were specifically. Uh, that's what the model was really, really good at. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. yeah. Very, very interesting, Tim. It was a, it was a great. And going back to kind of like, what is my experience? My experience is to take all these complicated things yes. and get them all pointed in the right direction. Finance, operations, team. I'd never run a software company before. So I, yeah. I'm kind of a quick study. And that's been something that has been through these chapters we were just talking about, uh, has been a, a, a through line, which is 
I'd like to dive into the deep end and learn. And Mm -hmm. I've bet on myself a number of times. And this was one of those cases where it was like, we made it, we made it happen. Mm -hmm. And so I take a lot of pride in, in that kind of through line because it's worked very well in the past. What's the first thing you do when somebody refers a business or service provider to you? I know what I do. I go to Google, I Google them, and I check out their website. And what I see online tells me a lot about how this person is going to conduct their businesses, whether it's service-oriented or product-oriented. I look at the details of the site. I read all about them. I check out their homepage. And maybe that's because I've been running an agency that builds websites for many years, But I also think how somebody presents himself online says a lot about how they'll do business with you. So highly recommend having a great website to conduct your business from. Check us out, www.thebrandid.com. If you need a website from one page to 100 pages, we can totally help you fulfill your need for an incredible website and presence online. Check out www.thebrandid.com. Dot com, thebrandid.com. And today you're a consultant, right? You work with service-based yes. business owners in various capacities. Yep. So tell us what you did um, after you exited the Hermosi family and what yeah. steps did you take to launch your own personal brand? Yeah. So I spent basically two decades burning the candle at both ends uh, and kind of always in sprint mode. And so post uh, my experience at Gym Launch, I took six months off. Good. (laughs) And I was like, I'm going to not, you know, kind of uh, do a rebound kind of concept. What do I actually want to do? And one of the things I, I had always known about myself, but it became really clear was I'm an empath. Mm-hmm. by nature. And I'm like, I've done, I've got all these wounds and battle scars and things like that. And people, when they kind of heard I was a free agent, if you will, and I was taking this time off, people just started calling and saying, Hey, you know, people in my network, can you help me with this? What about this? And so I started building mental frameworks mm. around these problems. Cause I was like, how do I get all this stuff out of my head and in a form where somebody else can use it? Because I'm like, I'm not, you're not hiring me. I'm happy to help you. Yeah. Let me give you some, some guidance. And I fell into this idea of starting to build frameworks and, and insights to these problems. And I really loved it, to be honest. And as a builder, I, a, a self-identified builder for many years, I found a piece in being kind of a mentor and a coach, which was unexpected. Now, also, I'm married, I have three kids, and I was like, I want to be present. So how do I meld this kind of new version of myself in my head with the practical realities of I want flexibility and things like that? And it basically fell into what I'm doing right now, which is packaging up all the stuff that I've done and that empath piece of me, helping deliver it for the next round of entrepreneurs who are sitting behind a computer feeling like the reality that they wanted to create is, you know, it's like that, uh, that image of, you know, the dollar bill on the fishing pole. And you're like, as far as you're trying, you're trying to catch it. 
and the more you go, the you know you, you don't get any closer. That is how I feel entrepreneurial isolation has manifested itself in a lot of ways. And so I've just been very fortunate over the last 18 months to work with a handful of service business owners, specifically around the idea of uh, having recurring revenue, because I just it's in my heart that once we kind of create a relationship with someone, we should be able to find and deliver solutions over time. Yeah. And helping package what's worked for me in the past. Uh, and consulting and and coaching and investing in the next round of entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And so I've moved from being me doing the execution to building a community of people who identify with the way that I think and my perspective on the world, which is very much a, how do we get to where we want to go, but not kind of sell our souls in the, uh, in in the process. Yeah, totally. Totally. Are most of your clients, when they come to you, do they already have a recurring revenue model or is part of what you do help them identify one and then implement it? Great question. So my sweet spot is really like a million, I say a million to 3 million. Most of them are kind of in the 750 to $1.5 million revenue range. The majority of them have some kind of recurring revenue, but Mm -hmm. it is not optimized. Mm -hmm. So let's just say that's probably three quarters. And a quarter of them are in a service business and recognize that having the ability to implement some kind of recurring revenue component is an important part of the future of of their business. Mm -hmm. And so we design and implement those systems as well. Mm. You mentioned that you created different mental models and frameworks for people that were coming to you for help. Did you find any similarities crossover, things like that, and what you were building? Because I'm wondering if there's just one master framework that sort of um, you identified as you were starting to kind of solve more micro problems for different folks. Yeah. So the first, the the place I started was very much a way that we were implementing a gym launch, which was we had had the fortunate fortunate to work with a coach named Alex Sharthen. Phenomenal gentleman, uh, and he introduced a concept called the five core functions of a business. So this is what we taught to gym business owners, and the five core functions are lead gen, lead nurturing, sales and conversion, product delivery, and a, a recent resale and ascension retention on the back end. Those are the five kind of main parts of the operation. I took that and added a few kind of other pieces to it, like. Um, you know, some of the financial components, because a lot of people want to build a business that they have the, the ability to sell at any one time. And so things like balance sheet and what's the you know concentration of revenue and some other things around the enterprise. So I use those two models as a starting point. So when somebody would come in and say, uh, the business isn't where I want it to be, well, we would look at the operations of the business mapped against those five core functions. And then if somebody said, I want to be, I want to hopefully have an exit in the next three to five years, I would then look at those other models and say, okay, well, what, what's the condition of the business? And a very simple idea of that is that the two I'll give you, because most people can identify with these are, if you are at the center of the universe, your business is the universe, and you don't want to go with the sale, meaning if you don't want to continue with the business, there's a problem there. You will not get the, re- the, the number, the buy, you know, the, the, the enterprise value number that you want. That process of extracting the key principle out of the operation will usually take 12 to 24 months Mm -hmm. to do successfully. Mm -hmm. So that's the first. The second is 
when you have concentrations of revenue, either around a single product or a single customer, that is risk to an investor. So I kind of put my investor experience hat on and say, well, what are, if I was to buy this business, what are the red flags? And so one of the processes that we do is we take, I take every business that I'm an investor in, I take it to market, meaning we actually go out and try to sell it at least once every two years. Mm. Because what, what happens is, and I have a network of people I will go to, so I'll take the business and we say, hey, do you want to buy this for this number? They will come back and say, I'm not going to pay your number for these five reasons. Mm-hmm. Oh, Those five reasons. <laughs> and then we go and there's our playbook. Right. That, though, that takes us 24 months. Of, of, then we'll go back to market and yeah. say, now will you pay us a bigger number? And we're driving revenue and things like that. Sure. Simple, not easy. Yeah. And, but I try to infuse some of that perspective into someone who's like put their blood, sweat, and tears into a business. The last thing I would want for them is to hear that their business effectively isn't sellable. And 85% of businesses under $5 million a year in revenue are not sellable in their current condition. The numbers bear it out. Yeah, totally. Well, and I love how you're using actual potential buyers to identify the problems. And then that, you know, to your point that, like you said, it becomes your playbook, that becomes what you have to fix and then go back out there. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. Is this part of your product to profit framework or is that something completely different? So you mentioned kind of like, did I identify small, call call it sub models under these? That is a lead gen slash finance uh, framework that I've built. And the the core idea is based on two things. The first is in this environment today, I, I saw that entrepreneurs were feeling the pull of needing to be marketers Mm -hmm. and product designers at the Mm -hmm. same time. And they saw those as two separate efforts. Mm -hmm. My belief is that the best way to authentically bring somebody into your world, and this quote of how somebody enters your world determines how long they stay. Mm -hmm. The best way to do that is to document or demonstrate what it is that you do behind the paywall on the front end when you're attracting that person into your world. But what that looks like is how many times have you seen a fluffy lead magnet, sizzle reel, something Mm -hmm. that is just not authentic to try to capture attention? And then it's like, well, if this is what your best stuff looks like, why am I going to become a client when this is kind of not even in the way that I want to uh, kind of get involved. So we take the best stuff and we bring it on the front end and say, let's demonstrate or document behind the scenes, case studies, things like that, to show you what it's like to be a customer before you pay us a dollar. And then we give you a bunch of ways through offers to become a a paying client or a Mm -hmm. core customer. That's Mm -hmm. the first. The second is the financial model. And this is something that we did at Gym Launch. So we introduced a $600 front end six-week challenge okay. in gyms. Think about most of the gyms that you see advertise. Most of them do a free day, a free trial, mm-hmm. a, a low ticket front end. The problem is if it costs you $100 to acquire a customer and you give them a free 30 days, yeah. that means I'm spending $100 today. Mm-hmm. I'm going to wait 30 days to have a chance to hopefully sell someone 
on a membership, Mm -hmm. which it may take me another 30 to 60 days to get my $100 back plus the cost to deliver the service. Right. Most small businesses under $5 million a year cannot float 90 days of acquisition dollars Mm -hmm. and do it at scale. Mm-hmm. This is why it feels like you're always on this treadmill, no pun intended, right. of spending money to acquire and never having enough left over. So what we do is we build a profitable acquisition system. We use product and offers to get back our acquisition dollars at the point of first purchase. Mm-hmm. So think of it as time to repay. Right. And that is a system. It's art and science combined, but that is a groundbreaking concept for most businesses where they don't have to get really, you know, get a really, really far ahead of the dollars that they're spending and wait. We, we call it kind of like the pay and pray strategy. Mm-hmm. This is what, how most marketing companies work. Mm-hmm. Give us a bunch of money. We're going to run some ads and hopefully it turns into something. Right. Right. So I work with marketing agencies. We're like, okay, give me an estimated cost to acquire a lead. We know what our conversion metrics are. And then the thing they buy has to pay us back immediately. Mm -hmm. So imagine very simply, if you had a machine that for every $50 you put in, you could get $100 out in 48 hours. Yeah. How many dollars would you put into the machine? As many as I could, right? That's the answer. (laughs) And and, but, But that fundamental perspective changes the world for every entrepreneur out there and every business owner out there. Because right now we are in the financing business, whether we know it or not, Yeah. unless you have a process like that. And it will change your world because it allows you to actually scale instead of feeling like it's painful now, it's just going to be more painful the long, the bigger I get. Right, right. Yeah. Can you share the behind the scenes of a success story? that you have of a client with maybe like, what was that tangible front end offer that you were able to monetize quickly? I, I'm, I'm going to give you kind of an esoteric one just sure. on purpose, because yeah. I think some of the similar ones were like, if you spend $50, how do we create a $100 offer or something like that? I work with a non-medical home care business. Okay. So think about, you know, elderly parents, they need help at home. This is not, you know, the medical complex. This is more of like uh, groceries and helping out around the house and things like that. They had a problem because, and, and their issue is, you know, they don't know how long someone's going to become a customer or a client mm-hmm. because health can decline and then they, they have to uh, end their services. And so they said, you know, I got to hire people. I have to have a bench of, of uh, nurses and, and, and staff, but I, I have an unknown period of time. So I said, well, how much does it cost to actually acquire the customer? Because they were taking, they were losing money on some of these, mm-hmm. these opportunities. And they said, it's, it costs about 500 to acquire a customer. Mm-hmm. And I said, great. What's your, when somebody comes in, how much do they pay when they start? Zero. You just pay for services. We're going to change all that. Mm-hmm. Very simple. And this might not be groundbreaking, but it's just an interesting idea. So we asked them to, ba- we, we created an onboarding process. Mm-hmm. And as part of that, I said, give me other assets you have in the company. He said, well, we have a whole education program. I said, okay, I want take that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Every person who becomes a customer, their family goes through an education program of what it, you know, how the services work, what it's like, mm-hmm. how do you choose a good agency, things like that. 
We made that a paid program. It's a $1,000 offer. Mm -hmm. So we get a $500 lead. We sell them a $1,000 education program, which is here are all the pitfalls of hiring an agency and things like that. And those people then become the clients of our non-medical home care agency. Mm -hmm. So we don't try to sell them services directly. We sell them education first, Mm -hmm. and then we are the natural provider for those folks. That makes a lot of sense. So education first, and then the services on the back end. Because the problem that we're solving initially, and we heard this, was if we just raised the prices, then we would just be an expensive provider. True. What we had to do was we had to say, we have to educate you because this is probably your first time around how the what are the industry dynamics? What are the, the pitfalls? What are the things to consider? Do you know that a cheap provider, you will not see the same person every time? So if right. that matters to you, you should consider that. Do you also know that they only show up 50% of the time within the hour window that they give you to show up? So do you care about dependability? Mm-hmm. Do you care about consistency? Like are, how much do these things matter to you? And then everyone who says dependence, you know, dependability matters, consistency yeah. matters, quality of care matters. We have a form related to that, mm-hmm. which allows us to segment each of our avatars. And if you say yes to all the questions we have, you go into our VIP program, mm-hmm. which includes a $5,000 front end signup fee and our basically higher tier rates, which are two and a half times industry averages. Mm. Once we implemented this program, we sold five times as much volume at a two and a half times higher price point. That's impressive. Really impressive. And we didn't. And so the product of profit, just to bring that back around, we didn't create any new assets. Yeah, it was all existing. Exactly. My my son is 10. He likes playing with Legos. We Mm -hmm. took the business. We separated all the Legos and we rebuilt them in different ways. Yeah, yeah. It's, and that is to give everyone listening the confidence that you, 99% of the time, you have all of these things already in your business. You don't have to build anything else. And mm-hmm. that is fundamentally different from, I need to go build a bunch of new marketing assets. So true. It's repackaging what you have. Yeah. Spot on. Yep. It's micro, micro productization. Uh-huh. How, how does it feel for you to be out there with your own personal brand? I guess the investment company with the the hedge fund was slightly like that too, yeah. but you have a business partner. So this is a little bit uh, different way of doing business for you. Yes, it is. It is. And I self-proclaimed, I missed the boat personally on creating a personal brand early on. Uh-huh. I was always the number two guy, or I was always the kind of the behind the scenes guy, which in this world didn't play well for me. So I'm playing a little bit of catch up. Um, yeah. But I also don't have dreams. I don't. I don't need two million followers on Instagram. I. I am the person. My vision for the next twelve to twenty-four months is to probably have a very solid, you know, ten thousand follow, you know, followers, uh, um, uh, subscribers on YouTube. I'm yeah. doing a lot on YouTube these days uh, coming up, uh, and then building a community of entrepreneurs where uh, I grow right now primarily through partnerships and joint ventures. Mm-hmm. I do very little on paid ads. And I think that hopefully will continue because it's it's just a reinforcement that I'm on the right track to deliver yeah. value. And the more value I deliver, uh, the the more that will that virtuous cycle will continue. But you're absolutely right. This is a brand new ball game for me. I am not a marketer by nature, uh, and so it's actually trying to understand the dynamics of TikTok is something I've just quite frankly chosen to not pursue. Yeah. Uh, 
it's just a different world. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. And that's okay too, because your ideal yep. target market is probably not on TikTok. Anyways. That's exactly right. Yeah. It's YouTube, but you've YouTube and LinkedIn. Yeah. 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 Um, and the other thing I want to say, Tim, is you were building your personal brand actually all these years because this is what's given you the substance to now yep. come out and you know put your your URL becomes your brand name. Had you not have all these substantive experiences along the way, you would just have a shell, right? Just an empty yes. shell. So even though it wasn't the Tim Calise brand all these years, it it actually was. It's just now your name is coming forward versus a business brand. But um, I think your your growth with this type of model and these types of frameworks and the way you you do work is it's a long game, right? This organic growth that you're doing on YouTube is a little bit longer, but I personally think it's a way to build a real solid foundation around the type of business that you're growing. Yeah, thank you. No, I, I appreciate that. And I, I've come to learn more recently that the the asset that I've been building, to your point, has been the confidence that when I say something, it's because it's from experience, yeah. not because I watched a video about it and are regurgitating right. what I saw. Uh, and so I think that ultimately what I think I will I will be successful on is the idea simply of people resonate with confidence and clarity and insight. And that is what I have been spending 20 years ish building. Uh, and now it's just packaging and, and putting it in the right place. So people yeah, can see it. Absolutely. And I think too, in today's market, we we're talking about a little a second about this before we hopped on and hit record. Um, people are craving simplicity and transparency and the complexity of the marketing world. These last years i think is is done quite frankly because yep. we are all yep. overwhelmed with the amount of contact and the next content and the next best way to do something and we all us owners entrepreneurs we know in our heart when something is makes sense and is logical i have found in my years of of running my own business the more complex something is the more it's just not worth investing time or money into because marketing is actually very logical. And what you're saying about taking existing assets and repackaging it, I think is, is spot on. Most people have things, but we lack the perspective. We're too close to our own business mm -hmm. to see how to repackage it and, and put it out there in a way. And we're also kind of mentally tied into these models um, existing models of how a sales funnel should work, right? Mm -hmm. And what you're proposing, again, it, it's not rocket science. It's very simple and straightforward, but why not shift things for the model of people paying early for something lower cost, right? All while we're educating them on the higher expense, right? Why, why this higher expense is warranted um, to make that sale. Yeah, I, I had, uh, it's, it, you're exactly right. I was actually on a two-day call uh, yesterday and, and the day before uh, with someone, it was me and there were probably 50 people on the call. Mm -hmm. And a guy was doing $2 million a year of profit working, you know, six hours a week. And he's I was there because the headline was simplicity is on the other side of complexity. Mm -hmm. And the whole idea was how to slow down some of these kind of very complex, very kind of uh, out of control uh, processes that have taken hold. Uh, but you're, you're absolutely right. And the people I work with, I, I've now started to see, I attract folks that 
and I've been very kind of intentional about this, so it's not by chance. I attract folks who are typically parents mm-hmm. because they see kind of, I put out a lot of the things that I do and, and how I see the world. And so the idea of maximizing return per unit of time matters a lot. I had someone who DM me yesterday uh, and he's in his early twenties. He's like, I have all the time in the world. I'll work 18 hours a day. Like, we're just not going to see the world the same way. Yeah. So I can tell you what to do, but it's just not going to resonate. It's just wrong fit. Uh, and I've now seen it's as much about attracting the right person, mm-hmm. that core avatar, as it is about, you know, kind of dispelling those that I already know it would, wouldn't be a good fit. Right. And by the way, the clearer we are on our avatar and literally writing it out, the more likely we are to actually attract that avatar. So if you haven't done that already, um, but you're very, I bet you have. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Tim, this has been a great interview. So, um, so interesting to hear your backstory and how you came to be to where you are today. Where's the best place for people to learn more about you and, and potentially work with you if, if they feel like you're a good fit for them. Yeah. Uh, LinkedIn is probably the best place. Tim Calise, C-A-L-I-S-E. Uh, I monitor all my own messages. So uh, send me a note there uh, as a listener. I would love to, uh, I've got a special gift for you. Um, so DM me uh, Rachel, R-A-C-H-E-L on LinkedIn. Uh, and I will send you a special gift related to one of the frameworks that we talked about today. Awesome. Thank you so much, Tim. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Business of You. If you found a little dose of inspiration or learned something new, please leave a review and share it with a friend or even two. Interested in building your brand and business? Tune in next time to The Business of You podcast. And remember, there's only one you. You're the biggest differentiator your business has. Until next time, friends. Friends.